It is said you can tell a lot about a person by what gives him pleasure. In fact, there was probably a time among Christians and religious people, in fact, maybe in some places still is, almost a puritanical notion that pleasure is bad. And if it's not bad, maybe it's something that at least we should not want a whole lot of if we're to be real spiritual-minded. And yet, did you ever stop and consider the idea that God made us for His pleasure? In fact, that we are actually able to give God pleasure? And part of the character and nature of God is feeling and enjoying pleasure. There's some 30 passages or more in the Old and New Testament that really speak of the pleasure of God and the pleasure that He gets from His creation. A couple of those, Psalm 149 and verse 4, says, For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. Or Psalm 35 and verse 27, the psalmist penned, Let the Lord be magnified who has pleasure in the prosperity of His servant. Now, this may sound a little bit strange to us to equate the holy, almighty God with a notion of pleasure. And the reason that may be is a couple of things. One, it may be because we have a false notion of the nature and character of God. On the other hand, it may be that we almost entirely equate pleasure with something that is physical and material and maybe sadly, even something that is sensual. But the Bible tells us that our God is a God with emotions and feelings, that God loves, that God hates, that God is a jealous God, that God gets angry, and it tells us that He takes pleasure in certain things. And so this morning, I want us to think for a few minutes about how to give God pleasure. I'd like to welcome each one that's with us today. We have several guests, and we're glad to have you in our assembly this morning. We hope that you've been edified and uplifted already by the time we have spent in praising God in song, by our prayers that we've taken to the throne of God to invoke His blessing, by the wonderful thoughts that Gabe has brought to us about the suffering of Jesus, and as we have taken communion this morning, and as we come together for a few minutes to study the Word of God, we ask that you open your Bibles, open your minds. You have sermon notes provided in the Family Matters, and the thoughts that we share this morning will help us to give a, get a better understanding of God and hopefully a better understanding of what He requires and what He asks of us. And the little email I sent out on Friday, I suggested to you that the lesson that I'm bringing this morning has actually been requested not exactly the title I decided to give to it, but I think the material at least that uh, I've been asked to bring that you will see that that is the case. So I hope this is helpful to those that have requested it and for all of us together as we think about how that we can give God pleasure. So, you know, a lot of times speakers wait to the very end to answer a question and keep you in suspense for the whole lesson. And I have been known to do that, but not this morning. We're going to get right to it. How do you give God pleasure? Through worship. That's how we can give God pleasure. Now, there may be other ways, certainly. I don't deny that. But I want to talk this morning about how we can give God pleasure as we come together 
to worship him. And the first thing that we need to understand about this is that God planned you and I for his pleasure. That God is the creator, we are the creation, but the Bible teaches us that even before the world began, that God formed us, he made us, he created us, that he might have pleasure in his creation. Consider Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Paul writes, just as he, talking about God, chose us and him, talking about Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us to the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. And so before God ever created the world, and he planned his creation, he planned to make man after his image and after his likeness, and he predestined that we might be adopted in his family through Jesus Christ, it was according to the pleasure of his will. And that God was going to seek pleasure in his people in doing that. God is pleased with those who worship him. The psalmist said in Psalm 147, verse 11, The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his mercy. You know, a lot of times from the Hebrew text, there are different, different ways in which some of these words might be, might be translated. One translation suggests here that the thought of this passage is, the Lord is pleased only with those who worship Him and trust in His love. Now, I'm not enough of a Hebrew scholar to know if that is a better rendering of that thought or not. It may or may not be. But I do know this thought is certainly in keeping with what we learn in the Bible. And as we're going to see through other passages this morning, the Lord is pleased with those that worship Him and worship Him in the way as we're going to see that He prescribed. When Jesus was talking with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, the conversation finally morphed itself into the idea of worship. And in that passage in John chapter 4, that Jesus tells her that the Father seeks those that worship Him. God is seeking worshipers. In that text in John 4, verses 23 and 4, He says, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. And those that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. God is seeking worshipers. God desires worshipers. You know why? Because it gives pleasure to him. That God takes pleasure in his people when they honor him, when they glorify him. You know, when we think about that just a little bit from a material, physical standpoint, all of us that are parents, don't we take pleasure when our kids respect us, when they honor us, when they obey us, when they follow our will, when they seek to comport themselves in a way that is in keeping with our values, we take pleasure in that. We say, that's my boy, that's my girl. And for those of us that are grandparents, 
we take pleasure. That's my boy. In fact, I got my boy, my girl here this morning. And so if you haven't met Miles Carter Welliver or Catherine Joy Welliver, you ought to do that. I take pleasure in them. They're my children. Oh, yeah, and Kenny, their father's here too, by the way, okay? Don't want to forget my son. You understand where I'm coming from. I think God looks down on his creation, and when we are what we ought to be, when we follow after him and we obey his will, he takes pleasure in us. He takes pleasure in his people. That's stated over and over again, especially in the book of Psalms. Well, the Father is seeking people to worship him and worship him in the way that he prescribes. He takes pleasure in that. Now, how is that? Well, if we're going to give pleasure to God through our worship, our worship then must be absolute. Now, what I mean by that is that we must worship God. The word worship literally means to pay homage to, to venerate, to bow down to. The word literally means to kiss the hand towards. That's the particular word that is used in this text. And so Jesus here defines who it is we are to honor, who it is that we are to venerate, who it is that we are to kiss the hand towards, and it is God. It is the Father. In the Old Testament, God demands absolute worship. In Exodus 20 and verse 3, one of the Ten Commandments was, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. In fact, he condemned Israel when they got away from him. And the book of Judges records again and again how that they got away from God. Judges chapter 2 and verse 3 says that they began to follow Baal and Ashtaroth, the idols that were in the land. God was displeased with that. God was not honored with that. God took no pleasure in that because their worship was not absolute. And so Jesus makes it quite clear. The Father seeks worshipers that will worship God absolutely and Him alone. When the devil tempted Jesus to fall down before Him in the wilderness and to worship Him, Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only you shall serve. These and many other passages, ladies and gentlemen, point to the worship, the only kind of worship that pleases God. God doesn't want a divided loyalty or a divided worship. He wants a worship that honors Him. How so? Well, even to the point in Revelation chapter 22, that when John saw the revelation or heard these things that the angel brought before him, the Scripture says, and John records this himself, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things, and he said to me, see that you do not do it. I mean, how would you feel if an angel came down fluttering and flapping his wings and revealed some incredible thing to you? Now, I know that was the age of the miraculous, and that God used angels in that way to appear to people. I, I, don't you have to appreciate how John was filled with awe he was enthralled by these scenes that the angel revealed. And even this great apostle of love, this follower of Jesus, this inspired man of God, felt like he owed this angel worship. And he fell down, but the angel said, don't do it. I'm your fellow servant. 
and of the brethren and the prophets and those that keep the words of this book. And then the angel succinctly said to John these two words, Worship God. You know, I wonder today when God looks down and he sees people that want to worship others, other people, venerate men to some lofty position that they have not achieved, worship an angel, worship idols, worship someone that sits on a throne in Rome or wherever, I wonder if he would, that an angel might come and say, worship God. Don't worship a man. We don't worship a preacher. We don't worship an idol. We don't worship a human being. We worship God. That's what the Bible says. That is absolute worship. But not only that, worship must be accurate. It must be accurate. It must be according to truth, John 4, 24. God is spirit, and those that worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, some today, like Pilate, snicker and sneer, and they go, what is truth? Who can know truth? You know what? We can know truth today. In fact, it's not just those that are out here in the denominational world or atheists or agnostics. I am increasingly running in to young people that have grown up in the Lord's church that are questioning what truth is. I tell you, I know what truth is. Truth has been revealed by God. John 17, 17, Jesus in his prayer said to the Father, sanctify them through your word. Your word is truth. The word of God is truth. That is what is absolute. All Scripture has given, been given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Scripture is inspired. That literally means God-breathed. And it's profitable for everything that we need in doctrine. It's profitable to reprove us, to correct us, to instruct us in right living. How? That we might be complete? That we might be equipped to be able to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish? And so we can worship God accurately according to the dictates of Scripture, according to truth. Worship must be accurate. And so if you're a guest this morning and you've come and joined us in worship, you have seen some things that we've done. We have communed with Christ at the supper. And you say, why Unleavened bread and the divine, because that's what is authorized. In Matthew 26, that's what Christ instituted and gave bread from 1 Corinthians 11. The Paul reiterated that. And so we use those elements. And why the first day of the week? Because early disciples came on the first day of the week, Acts 20 and 7. And they, they did that. And we know implied from that passage, it was every first day of the week. You know, I, I, I marvel at people that say, oh, you don't have to do it every first day of the week. I had an aunt. When I was growing up, and she belonged to one of the most popular religious denominations in the South, and they did it quarterly. And once in a while, when they were visiting my parents, she would bring that up about, well, you know, we, we do a quarterly so it doesn't become commonplace. If you do it every week, it becomes commonplace. I wonder if the Jews thought that when Jesus, or when God revealed to Moses in Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Do you suppose a Jew came up to Moses and say, uh, 
Moses, we've been doing this every Sabbath, but it doesn't, it doesn't say every Sabbath. And, you know, this may get to be commonplace, Moses, and so maybe we ought to do this quarterly. Jews didn't, they understood what it said on the Sabbath, it meant every Sabbath. I used the illustration, I think, here one time in, in doing a lesson on authority, that if you want to go to Chick-fil-A today and eat, you're out of luck. They're closed. And when you go down there, you're going to see a sign that says closed Sunday. It just says closed Sunday. You say, well, maybe they're open next Sunday. Maybe it's just today, huh? And so you go next Sunday and they're still closed. And you go the next Sunday. You go four Sundays in a row and they're closed and you're tired of this and you go in on Monday morning and say, I've been here four Sundays in a row and you're never open. How come? They say, we're closed Sunday. Well, you didn't say every Sunday. I say, sir, are you feeling all right? You got a temperature? You need to see a doctor? Maybe a psychiatrist. You know, we, we, we chuckle at that because it's silly almost. The, the example is almost to the point of absurdity because we understand necessary implication, necessary inference in almost every phase of life, except sometimes when it comes to the Bible. Isn't that amazing? It, 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 it's, it's astounding. And so we come and eat the Lord's Supper every Sunday. They praised God in the first century when they assembled in heartfelt singing. Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16 tells us that we are to sing and make melody in our heart. They were to teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Make a melody to your, uh, your heart to the Lord. <clears throat> singing. Uh, if you're a guest this morning, you may have noticed the absence of absence of any instrumental accompaniment and you may wonder why well reason is very simple we're trying to worship here according to truth to be accurate and when you look through the new testament it was always acapella music nine times the word sing is mentioned in the new testament not one thing is said about play. say yeah but they 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 had instruments the old testament yeah they did and he also had animal sacrifices and he also burned incense we don't do any of that because the Old Testament's been nailed to the cross. When Jesus suffered and died on the cross, he nailed the old law to the cross. Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2. We're not under it anymore. And so we just do what the New Testament says. I was telling Gabe this the other day when I first started preaching in a little town in Hillsborough, Ohio. One of the elders took, with me, took me to visit a woman that was a member of the Christian church there. And they used instruments. And he had been trying to work on her to, to get her to come over to where we were. And they were a very conservative group. They taught baptism, the mission of sins, and a lot of the things that we taught right out of the Bible. But the conversation came up, and he predicted to me it would about music. She said, Delbert, I just can't go over there because you all believe that a piano will send you to hell. I'll never forget Brother Gilliland's answer to this woman. He, he can't shook his head and laugh like Delbert would do. He said, Betty... <laughs> there's not enough pianos in the world to send anybody to hell. I'm just a young guy, and I thought, well, that's an interesting way to say that. He said, but you know what? Your attitude toward the authority of the word might. I thought that was a great answer. And so it's not that we're against pianos 
or that we think there's something in a piano that's going to send a person to hell. It's a matter of what does the Word of God say about worship. We want it to be accurate. You know, I've noticed in talking to people about that issue through the years, no one ever disagrees that singing is scriptural. I've never had anybody say, yeah, but you're unscriptural because you don't. No. So we know it's right and can't be wrong, don't we? That's accurate. In the New Testament, they gave financially support the Lord's work. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, 2 Corinthians uh, 9, 8 and 9. They gave as they, as they were prospered. They gave cheerfully. They gave as they purposed in their heart. They gave on their first day of the week. Now, you know what is absent from that? Raffles, bazaars, pie suppers, uh, fundraising events, selling the world's finest chocolate. <laughs> Don't read about any of those kind of things to raise money. And yes, somehow churches feel like they're at liberty to do that. And I, I'm telling you, that's not accurate. That's inaccurate if we're going to worship as God wants. And so the only way we raise money to support the work of the Lord here is what you just saw a while ago. We passed the plate. No one's arm is twisted. No one is told to give a certain amount. We give as we personally and individually believe that we're financially able to do so. That's biblical. That's accurate. And in the first century, they listened and meditated upon the Word of God. Paul preached when he came together on the first day of the week to the saints at Troas in Acts 20 and verse 7. And we see preaching, and so we have preaching. Some people today don't like preaching. And I, I've heard of some of these groups, and what they like to do is get together in someone's living room on Sunday morning and sit around in a circle and hold hands and sing kumbaya, and we'll, we'll share our feelings. You know, they're missing out. Now, I know some folks say, you know, I went to church and the preacher preached at me. Wow. Well, what, what's he supposed to do? <laughs> Last time I checked, preaching is the people. And the New Testament preachers preach the people. One time, a lady went out and she said, you stepped on my toes this morning. I said, well, I'm sorry, ma'am. I wasn't aiming for your toes. I was aiming for your heart. And that, that's right. Preaching is to the heart. That's biblical. That's accurate, isn't it? And that's what needs to take place. Worship must be accurate. And then they offer prayers and thanksgiving to God, Acts 2.42 and many other places. You know, some people mock this. And they say, all oh, the five acts of worship. Well, why don't you call it the five avenues of worship? Or call it five ways in which we express worship. Or why don't you call it the five absolute authorized avenues of authentic worship? How's that? Now, I can't find anything else. And I've been doing this for over 40 years. Now, we've already said we're not under the old law, so we can't have animal sacrifices. That's been done away. Incense was done away. We've already seen worship of angels as forbidden. There's no mention of praying to the saints. Don't see any of that? And so I better just do what the Bible says. How to give God pleasure through worship? It must be absolute. It must be accurate. But it also must be authentic. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, our soul, our spirit, our passion, our emotion must be put into it. 
he's talking here about the heart of man but our emotions must be genuine and not fake they're not just emotions that we just raise up in some kind of a fake kind of a way they must be real god hates hypocrisy he hates a phony he hates showmanship and god doesn't want us just to get worked up and worked into some kind of emotional frenzy to put on a show but he does want us to put our heart into worship it must be authentic it must be sincere it must be earnest in Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9, Jesus said, These people draw not near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines and commandments of men. Now, they had a couple problems. One, they had substituted their tradition, as we read earlier in the passage, for the command of God. But the other place was, it was lip service, and it didn't come from the heart. And he said, it's in vain. It is empty. It is void. It is fruitless. You see, it is possible for worship to be accurate but not authentic. But it is also possible for worship to be authentic but not accurate. So let me explain what I mean by those statements. Worship may be accurate, but it has no passion. It has no spirit. It goes through a set of rules and, and rituals, but it lacks feeling. And so, brethren, we ought not to come into an assembly like this and fold our arms and feel smug that, well, we know the truth. We do the five acts of worship. And all those other people who do it are wrong. And then just go through it with no thought, no feeling, no, no focus, no passion. You know, sometimes... And, and, and I try not to be judgmental because someone could come in here and worked all night and didn't get any sleep or could be on some strong medication that puts you to sleep. But, you know, I've seen, and I, I don't know that I've actually even seen it in this congregation, but I have seen it in places where someone's just dead asleep. Now, I figure this, uh, Kevin, if they can go to sleep as loud as I preach, they probably need a rest. I don't know. Maybe so. How in the world can we worship in spirit if we're asleep? But then some people are asleep mentally. Their eyes are awake, their eyes are open, but their mind's somewhere else. They're thinking somewhere else. Their eyes are on the watch. Will he make it in 30 minutes? Will I get to the restaurant before they get down the street? <laughs> I got a plane to catch. I don't know what. You know, all these things that go through our minds if we're not careful. And, and I understand. It is so easy to get distracted. I mean, the least little thing can, I mean, we can look down and see the carpeting unraveling and get to looking. Well, look at that. Now I've said that someone's looking. See for, I mean, it's just amazing. But when that happens, I need to get my mind back on worship. Back on the lyrics of the songs. Back on the, the thoughts of the prayer I'm being laid in. Back, back to the scripture verse. Back to the point of the sermon. And so we can go through acts of worship accurately, but individually not do them with authenticity. 
But it's possible to go to the other extreme to put a lot of feeling into worship and not, not have it accurate. Some people get very emotional, but it's not according to truth. They get passionate about worship, but it's not, they don't have scriptural support. Worship is not just an emotional outburst, an excited display of, of personal feelings, and, and we can feel good about a thing but be wrong in what we're doing. And the fact that our emotions are touched and aroused may not necessarily be a sign that worship pleases God. Some may counter by saying, well, I don't think God cares how we worship as long as we put our heart into it. Well, he does care. He cared in the Old Testament. He cared when people violated his word. He cares today. And here's the sad part of all of this, it seems to me. That some think it's an either-or situation. Someone says, well, our worship may lack some enthusiasm, but at least it's accurate. And the counter to that is, well, we may do some things a little different, but at least we're enthusiastic about it. Does it have to be either or? I don't think so. Why can't it be both? Why can't we put our hearts into what we're doing? If our worship is not absolute, let's open our eyes and refocus on God that we're here to worship. If our worship is not accurate, let us open the Bible and follow truth. And if our worship is not authentic, let us open our hearts and put feeling into our worship. I want to close this lesson with, with one story. It's a true story. In fact, it's a Bible story. It's found in the book of Malachi. If you want to turn there, I'm not going to read all of these verses. I'm going to highlight a couple. Well, I want to show you something that I've been saying this morning about how that we can give pleasure to God. And the book of Malachi was written after the restoration of God's people to their homeland. And so they had gone through idolatry. They had gone into captivity in and, and Assyria and in Babylon. And now they've come back home. It's about 400 years before Christ. You would think with all of the things that they had gone through, that these people are really going to be faithful to God now. But look what God says to the prophet Malachi, and I'll read verse 6, beginning. God says, The son honors his father and a servant his master. If I then am a father, where's my honor? And if I am a master, where's my reverence, says the Lord of hosts? To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, yeah, well, Where have we despised your name? And then he tells them in verses 7 and 8, They've offered defiled food on the altar. They've looked at the table ward as being contemptible. They had offered the blind animals for sacrifice, the lame and the sick. He said, is the governor going to be pleased if you offer that kind of thing to him? And then he says in verse 10, a shocking statement. God's saying this through Malachi. Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you. Isn't that a shocking statement? That God would say, you know, would, would someone just lock the meeting house up? I just assume you didn't even come in if that's the way you're going to worship. I have no pleasure in you. If God spoke from heaven today and sent a prophet like Malachi around Louisville 
in Denton County. I wonder how many churches would hear that message. Is there someone who just shut up the door? I don't have any pleasure in your kind of worship. And before we're too quick to judge the other folks, it might be well to look within our own hearts. Because he was talking to his own people. He was talking to Israel. That they gave God the second best, according to the law then. They weren't giving God the best. And when they came in, in verse 13, they said, oh, what a weariness it is. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. You can almost feel the, the lackadaisical lukewarmness in that. <sighs> oh, come on, kids, we got to go to church. Come on, Mabel, we better go before the elders call us again and we get 27 notes from the care group. <sighs> That's what it's saying. A lack of spirit, a lack of feeling, a lack of passion. What pleases God? Absolute, accurate, authentic worship. And it begins with me and my heart and you in your heart, giving God the best we can. And when we do that, according to what we've read in his word this morning, God will take pleasure. Can't you almost see God looking down with a smile on his face? Saying, those are my people. That's my boy. That's my son. That's my daughter. And we give God pleasure and worship. May God bless us here in this church family to be those kind of people in our worship to God. Amen. You sure have listened good this morning. Thank you. And I hope the lesson helps us, all of us, please God and give Him pleasure. So we close this morning with singing a song of invitation and encouragement. If you're not a Christian, we sure would like for you to be one. The Lord would like for you to be one. The Lord would be pleased if you would come to him in faith and repentance and confess your allegiance to him as the Lord of lords and the King of kings, as the Son of God. And then you submit to his command, be buried in water. Sit down, son, okay? Be buried in water for the remission of your sins to have the blood of Jesus wash away your sins and help you become his child, his son his daughter that is sure pleasing be added to his church to his people maybe you've done that and you've wandered away and you become unfaithful to that pledge and obligation you once assumed why not come back home why not make it right why not give god pleasure in your absolute obedience to him we can serve you if we can help you would you come as we stand and sing